but they weren't really on the but here they're they're great they're cheap and you can talk to people that's that's about dive bars you people go there to talk right and i think if you don't realize that then you're missing out because you know if you're bored sitting at home just go to a bar and talk to some people it's great Hello and welcome to Here in L.A., Sherman Oaks edition. Today, we talk with Josh Tate. Josh is a writer, producer, and filmmaker who once was a bigwig at Bad Robot in Santa Monica. Before that, he was the movie reviewer for L.A.ist, where he turned out lots of reviews every month in hopes of getting into the industry. Well, it worked. Now Josh is on the road producing a million-dollar movie and living his dream. But before he headed out south, he chatted it up with us within walking distance of Ventura Boulevard. So come join us. Hey, everybody. I am here in Sherman Oaks with Josh Tate. Hello, hello, hello. L.A. in America. Josh, uh, I see you're wearing your North Carolina blue. I am. You're, you went to college at... at I did. You're a, a, a Tar Heel. I did. It's a big night. We can't believe... I, I think everyone wanted to beat Duke, but I think we're all actually a little surprised that it happened a second time. So Were, were they supposed to be better than you this year? They are better. I mean, they are measurably better in terms of the regular season and the players, but, you know, that's why they play the game, as Chris Berman used to say. That's right. Yep. Well, uh, sadly, this probably isn't going to come out until... <laughs> Right. We'll know. <laughs> the end of May or, or yeah. I'm sorry, the end of April or May. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. We'll, so tonight is the championship game? Tonight at 6, six o'clock. Who are you playing? Uh, we play Kansas. The Jayhawks. The Jayhawks. So two yep. classic college teams playing each other. Traditional Blue Bloods. They tend to beat us very badly in the NCAA tournament. So uh, it's going to be a hard one. I think everyone is actually, it's weird. You know what? Sometimes when you win the game before the game, you get satisfied. Yeah. I'm a little worried our team is satisfied, but who knows? You never know until you get on the court. You find things, you know, in yourself and in your team when you when you play the championship games. When you were in college, who was the star players? Oh man, it was Jerry Stackhouse. Oh, it was For, the, uh, who ended up going to the Pistons. He did. Yep, uh, Rashid. Rashid Wallace. Rashid was there. Yep. What a team already. Uh, Derek Phelps didn't really go pro, but he was a good college player. Uh-huh. And then early, in my, you know, because college people actually used to go for four years then. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. And I, and I obviously stayed in college for more than four years because it was so much fun. Uh-huh. Um, but when I first got there, it was like J.R. Reed, King Rice, guys who were kind of like one and dones in the NBA. Right. They didn't really, didn't really make a name. Yeah. But it was great. Good basketball school. Terrible football school. Right. I'm well... Didn't you give uh, us Bears guys uh, Mitch Trubisky? We did. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Mitch, I, I'm also a Steelers fan. Um, I have a really weird sports love because I didn't grow My dad was in the Air Force. Mm. So I didn't grow up in a town that had mm. sports fans. So I chose my sports team. You know, you know, you pick a sports team when you're like eight as a kid, and then it stays with you for life, and no one ever understands how emotional you get for no reason about your teams. But. My teams were, I had a stepfather who was a Cowboys fan. 
So I think I rejected my stepfather and chose his arch enemy, the Steelers. Ooh. And then my best friends were all from Boston, but the Patriots sucked. Right. So they only ever talked about the Celtics and the Red Sox. So I'm a Celtics, Red Sox, Steelers fan. Which uh, Steelers year was this, approximately? This would have been, nine, my parents got married, I think, or remarried, like 75, 76. Oh, the Steel Curtain. Steel Curtain. And then they played the Cowboys twice in the Super Bowl yeah. during that time, winning both times. So you were in the house rooting against your stepdad's, yeah. uh, what is that, Roger Staubach. Yeah, um, Danny White, Tony Dorsett. Right. They say Dorsett. Back in the day, it was Dorsett. Now he's Tony Dorsett. <laughs> um, I feel terrible about it. My stepdad is such a nice guy. Oh, was he? And I was just a dick as a little kid. Because you're a dick when you're a little kid, right? Your parents get divorced. <laughs> Who's this new guy? There's no way around. I mean, there is if you're probably a better person than I was back then. But it's pretty normal, I think, for a stepkid to be a little, you know, or a kid to be a little suspicious. I completely agree. Yeah. And you, you ended up fine. Mostly, yeah. Um, you're you're here in LA, um, living in Sherman Oaks. Yep. Uh, we first met because uh, when I was doing LAist, you probably approached me and said, "Can I write movie reviews?" I did. Yeah, I think there was there was a notice. There was something you guys were looking for that, and I had had like a lot of people did a very frustrating entertainment career. You know, it's hard to get in. This is the thing. I, I it's so hard to get in if you don't know anybody. And I didn't know anybody. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I had the opportunity, I was like, fuck yeah, let's go. And that was an opportunity because I knew if I could write reviews that I could actually get good into festivals. And if you get into festivals, you start meeting filmmakers and maybe all of my frustrated dreams of being a filmmaker, I would, you know, kind of backdoor it. And, but it all started with writing those reviews, which was a hell of a lot of fun. With LAist, I said to everybody, I can't pay you, but tell me what you want to cover and I'll make sure that I help you cover it. Yep. And... That was the majority of my day, was trying to get people like Joey Maloney and Jeff Koga um, photo passes at concerts, or helping writers get press passes to wherever they needed to go. Yep. Or not necessarily press passes, but on the list. Yep. I don't remember ever needing to do that with you. I, I don't know if it's a personality fault or a personality virtue. <laughs> if someone is just like, and this is what my favorite part of, of writing there was, which was, you, you just said, write what you want, like write what you want. And that's okay. And I always wanted to push it. And you know, if you read my old, like Transformers review, it is <laughs> so wrong in so many ways, but you know, you let us write what we wanted. And all I've ever needed from people is like, if they say go, don't worry about me. I'll run with the ball coach. Yes. You know? Yes. And I knew enough about the industry at that point to know that so much of it's bullshit. But if you have a little bit of credibility behind you and I had a press outlet yes that was enough I knew I could get in anywhere if I was persistent enough and, and yes. it worked out for the time I was writing there I also noticed that a lot of times when people especially in the early days of LAist when uh PR people whoever would try to talk down to us or I would be like you got this 50 foot yard or 50 foot red carpet okay the LA Times okay AP who else LA Weekly, okay, but still, now you, you still got like 20 more spots. What's it got to take for me to get one of those spots? Right. Do I, need to, do I need to cover one of your like crappier events that you got going? We'll do that too. And when it came to letting people write what they want, I always reacted better as a writer when I was really into it. Mm -hmm. If you give me this DVD that I don't even know and you say review it, I... I'm probably not going to judge it fairly because I'm, I'm angry. Yeah. I don't know. I just want to get rid of it. But if, if you saw Transformers and you've got, 
50 inches worth of stuff to talk about to do it, man. Yeah, yeah no, it was great. I, I, lo- I missed it because I, you know, I had to stop when I, when I went over to Bad Robot. I had to stop because, you know, to be completely honest, my point of view was that of a frustrated entertainment person. Mm-hmm. And so you tend to, I wouldn't say, I don't think I was unfair necessarily, but I certainly never gave them the benefit of the doubt. Right? <laughs> I was pretty mean to powerful people. And that was fine when I was an independent, but then I, I couldn't work at Bad Robot and then call Michael Bay a piece of shit. Even I like Michael Bay, by the way. I think he's a, he's a <laughs> now and then he's a really great filmmaker. Um, but um, I just couldn't do it then. So I had to leave, which sucked. I really loved it. I really, because it was, I wrote, I think three columns a week just yeah. because I was, you know, I had a shitty day job and that was sort of my escape from it. <laughs> the, the, the bitterness, the anger, the honesty is what's missing in the journalistic landscape today now that the blogosphere is gone. Yeah. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think that the thing now, you see it, I see it so much in sports reporting and entertainment reporting, is the access control. And you are now playing for access, and you have to be a partner. You know, you have, if you're going to write about the Lakers, you have to be a partner with Clutch Sports. Yeah. You can't be, I mean, some, if you're not affiliated with the Lakers, you don't care. You can rightly point out what a shitty trade it was for... Michael uh, for uh, Russell Westbrook, but if you do that, you know, and you're part of, you know, if you work for the LA Times or you're not going to do that. I just don't think they are. I think they're afraid. I think it's it's not. I get it. I get why you are going to be judicious about how you say things, but it's really sad because you you realize, you know, if you're if you're at all fair minded and objective about this, journalism in some industries is converted into publicity has converted into publicity. Which is what, I mean, I don't know what it's like now, but when I, when I was at the LA Times, right after LAist, they were clear that we are not there to be PR. And some of the pitches that I got from Bruce Willis, Hugh Hefner, were full-on PR that nobody else would take. And I was like, well, I'll take it because, fine, we see that that's what they want. We can give them a taste of it, but while I'm there... You can't stop me from asking them real questions. Right. And you, for sure you can't stop me from putting it in there. And if Bruce Willis's vodka company doesn't want to talk to me again, or the LA Times, boo-hoo. At least, at least they got something out of it. But I think that there is a happy medium where you can talk about something. And it might not be the clip that they put on their wall, but at least you've done your job as a journalist. You didn't waste the talent's time. Right. And, and you did the right thing. Also, I, I remember at LAist dissing Coachella's first three-day weekend, Mm -hmm. even though I had a really good relationship with their PR people. And and I think that they appreciated the honesty because Golden Voice comes from literally a punk rock background. And they get plenty of love from everybody else. And that kind of feedback, especially from their target audience, I think is better for them in the long run than getting their ass kissed. Yeah. Yeah, I think people respond to authenticity in a way that stakeholders sometimes undervalue. Yes. Because they worry that if you're honest, it will turn people off. And the reality is, no, if, you know, if you're interviewing some actor or some director or whoever, and they give you some hard honesty that is a little uncomfortable and you're like, fuck, I don't know if I should say this, but you know, they, they told it to me, so I'm going to. Yeah. I think the public's reaction to that is they tend to like that person more. Oh, they for sure. More, they feel more genuine. Uh, at the times, uh, T.J. Simers was on his way out. Yeah. But um, but while he was there, he 
was ruthlessly critical yeah. on people. And I remember almost right at the end of his reign, he did a, um, a special event with Sandy Koufax, and I think Joe Torre was there too, and because I think it was Joe Torre's um, um, nonprofit called Safe at Home um, to raise money for domestic abuse. And Sandy Koufax talks to nobody, but the reason that he talked to TJ was TJ always kept it real. Mm -hmm. And I think that at a certain level, if you are always keeping it real, to the point in TJ's case of almost always being negative, right. you want to be the one guy that can get a positive review out of him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a lost art. Yeah. But, and was TJ not the best guy, the guy that you wouldn't want to go to a dinner party with? Sure, but... But in the column, if he wrote a positive article, that was that was news. Yeah, in a way, it feels more, again, authentic and more earned. Yeah, because you you realize there's there's just no version that that was paid for. You know, that's right. Whether with money or with time or with access, it was generally earned. So I, I took that to heart, and anytime that anybody criticized me for being critical, I was like, the role of the press isn't an extension of PR. Yeah, it's the, it's to tell your brothers and sisters what you saw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I and I I do think though that we are backsliding on that a little bit. Not again, not in every area, but in certain areas, because people, you know, the the democratization of media doesn't just empower citizens; it also empowers large, you know, format people. Yeah, that's what I'll call them, famous people. To <laughs> they can choose their outlet. There's no no. There's no longer three networks, right? There's no longer mm -hmm. big newspapers. There can now be direct communication and just completely bypassing the press. And I don't think yeah. that's great for, you know, for, I don't want to say it's not great for our country. because That sounds so like, but it isn't good for, it, but it is bad for our country. I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. And uh, I don't know what you do about it. You know, I really don't know how you fix that. But I, the, I think the way you fix it, honestly, is people get older and then generations flip. And we see that all the time. That's right. Where you can't fix these things other than by dying out and having, that's right. Your brother, your you know, the younger ones come in and choose to do it the opposite of the way you've done it before, which is a pretty common thing for young people to do. Yeah. So after LAS, you went straight to Bad Robot. Straight there. Okay, so Bad Robot. For those of you who might know, but probably don't know the whole thing. When I think of them, I think of Lost. Yep. Was Lost going on when you went over there? It was. It was, I think we, I joined there in season five. Wow. So how, how many seasons did it? There were ultimately seven. I think that's right. There may have been six. I'm a terrible, terrible fan. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there were seven. <clears throat> were you a fan at the time? I was a massive fan of the first season. Yep. That's one thing that I do miss about, about network television. I don't watch any network TV anymore. But back then, you would get together with your friends and watch Lost. Mm -hmm. I don't think that really happens anymore outside of the reality space and about li and then live events. Which is why I wish I wish some of these movie complexes that are either shuttered right now or just not doing great just gets bought by Netflix or Amazon or ABC so that when uh, when they do have a hit, the audience can watch it together. Yeah. 
You know, I, I would have loved to have seen Game of Thrones with an audience on a big screen. Yep. And for sure Lost. I mean, I think Lost was one of the first that was just cinematically beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I love this show. The first season was just, there had been nothing like it before. What ended up, you know, it's one of those things you just learn about life. <laughs> is when you, uh, especially with Lost, that what I thought were great hanging plot lines were just red herrings at the end of the day. There was no resolution. And that was the trend for a long time. I don't think that's the trend anymore. But for a long time, that was a trend amongst, and Bad Robot was part of that, you know, this idea of storytelling where the mystery is part of the storytelling and it will never be answered. And that felt counterintuitive to the way we like to listen to stories. We want to know how it ends. Yeah. And sometimes when someone says, well, there's really no ending, that can be frustrating or, or, or there's no you know, resolution to a lot of the things that you found fascinating about it, that they were just sort of there. They were just, you know, decoration was, it's tricky. Uh, I love the last season of Lost 2. First season and last season, I was all in. In between then, I became sort of a, <laughs> I, I think heartbroken, honestly, is the word. That's, that tends to happen, same with Game of Thrones. I was heartbroken by the last yeah. two seasons of that show. The, um, the, the other issue with these red herrings is, as college graduates, we're taught that symbolism means something. That the gun in the first act goes off in the third. Yep. And so we, we want to believe that there's this well-constructed format. Mm -hmm. And Lost, I think, was the first time that we, Gen Xers at least, um, realized, oh, no, maybe they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And, and what's worse was, I, forget, I think it was JJ came on Howard Stern and said, oh, no, you're going to be satisfied with the ending. We know what's going on. Yeah. And because Howard was a huge fan yep. and had a huge audience. Sure. And was constantly criticizing the show. Yep. And I think it was JJ who went on that. Yeah. Um, yeah and when it happened, when the ending happened, in, which was a fine ending. I, I agree with you. I think that the last season was fine. But there was a lot of loose ends. Yeah. I think what happened, and, and no one has ever confirmed this, and I've asked, and they won't either won't say it or just choose to keep the mystery alive. My instinct is that the fans guessed it pretty early they guess the they guess the big reveals early mm -hmm. and so what you have to do then is misdirect them so that you can because at the end of the day this is something jj said once years ago and i really believe he believes it and, and i actually believe it it's the, and it's the reason that bad robot was always a secretive company about our projects it wasn't because we were trying to keep it away from people it was you wanted the to preserve the ability to surprise people and i think that's a value and i think it's a good value and I think that's that may have been what happened with Lost. I don't know for sure, but I think that may have been what happened. Were you living in this apartment in San, in uh, Sherman Oaks? No, I was living at that time. I was living in on the West Side. I was living on Ashland. Uh, where was the Bad Robot in? It's it's in Santa Monica. It's oh. right off Olympic Boulevard. Olympic and uh, Euclid. Oh, so right by uh, SMC. Yes. Yeah, a few blocks down. Okay. Yep. Um, okay, so not a bad commute. No, no, it was great. I rode my bike to work every day. It was Did fantastic. You really? Yeah, it was great. Wow. Uh, and then once I got there, because it was such, it was a small company, and they they want to do a lot. And what that meant for me was, if you just say yes, you'll move. You'll get. You know, you won't just be the mailroom attendant for the rest of your life here. And I didn't want to be, obviously. And I just started saying yes, and then I started running the intern program. And then the big leap was one day my boss Ben came up to me and said how would you like to go to London and work on Mission Impossible Rogue Nation 
for the next year doing their behind the scenes. And I'd made short films my whole life. I had my first job as a behind the scenes person was Mission Impossible. <laughs> I can't tell you how fucking terrified I was every sure. day. Well, because Tom Cruise is super intense, right? Tom is very intense. And Tom, a story that I'll tell that I love is we're, the first things we shoot are in Vienna at the Opera House, the very first days. We're, so, like, we're like Mozart did his thing? Yeah, I don't, I'm sure he did. Yeah, I don't know which, which thing he did there. But we're inside the actual Opera House in Vienna. <laughs> and we're sitting up there. And my friend Mike Reyes, who's now this great commercial uh, cinematographer, but this was Mike's first job out of college. And... He comes downstairs to me. He's like, Tom, just talk to me. <laughs> and Cruz had literally walked up to him while he's shooting and said, you know, always shoot as low as possible so you get like a more dynamic image. Because Tom cares. I think Tom really did care about, you know, making people, uh, when they watch the documentaries, think that, that his movies are cool and exciting. And they are. So he's even talking behind the scenes. Yeah. Shoot low. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. If you watch the, I think it's on the, it's, it's Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. It's on the Target DVD. This is a horrible thing that studios <laughs> did several years ago when there still were DVDs. They would portion out special editions to different stores. Oh. And so you can never get anything in one place. Huh. And Target, for whatever reason, got all of the featurettes in one place. But we did 90 minutes of them. It was, you know, it was a lot of work. And it was great. So, yeah, I, I said yes to that. And then I just kept saying yes, and I kept getting promoted. And it was, for a long time, it was just, you know... It was the best. Who directed that Mission Impossible? That was Chris McQuarrie. That was the first time he'd done one. He'd written on the previous one, and then this was the first time. And now he's done all of them. They clearly developed a relationship on that film. Uh, we, we, when I think of Mission Impossible, those ones, I think about the action. Yep. Is, is there any, like, how do you capture that with behind the scenes? What we were doing, there, was, there were two that were really big. The, one, the first one was the plane, where Tom holds onto the outside of the plane. And we could not figure out how on earth we were ever going to get a camera on the outside of the plane without building some sort of special housing. And we talked to our special effects department because they built one for the main camera, but there wasn't room to put our little GoPros in there. Oh, you had GoPros back then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had GoPros. Mm -hmm. And then um, what ultimately happened is we talked to the people who, who flew the plane and they said, well, the plane has cameras on the outside. Yes. Because they have to be able to look you know, to see what's going on. So if you watch the, the DVD, you'll see that there is footage that's shot from the plane's point of view. And then for everything else, you just, you know, you go to the camera team and you say, can I put my camera on your rig? You know, there's so many different types of rigs. There's cranes and there's something called the biscuit rig, which they used a lot on Mission Impossible for the roller, uh, the motorcycle stuff. And you just go to the camera guys and you say, can I clamp my camera to your thing? And then you just press, right before they say cut, you just press play and run away. <laughs> and hope that you got something cool out of it. But even if you don't, you know you still have... Like, how, how long was this shoot? Like, the two shoot months? Was, no, 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 not even close. It was... We started, I think, in July. Mm -hmm. And we finished in March. And we oh had a hiatus God. in there. We had a hiatus in there of a few weeks. Because so it was almost a year of shooting. Almost a year, yeah. Almost a year so of shooting. So even better if you miss a shot, whatever. Yeah. Because now... You've got to compress almost a year of shooting into 90 minutes. Yep. That's got to be hard. It was, it was really tricky. Well, what you figure out first is, well, what stories do we want to tell? And then you figure out what footage will actually work for that. The trickiest part of all of it was clearly the person tying the entire thing together was Tom Cruise. Right. 
And Tom did not want to speak to us until he'd seen the movie. Because he wanted to make sure he was speaking. And Tom was, you know, obviously seeing cuts along the way. But he wanted to have the most informed opinion of the film before he spoke with us. Because he didn't want to look foolish, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. The problem was that it was taking them so long to get the movie done. So we, I think, talked to Tom in the first week of June. The movie came out in July. So... We were editing around what we were hoping the questions would be for Tom to answer appropriately. So it was really tricky. Um, the woman who edited a lot of it was this girl named Becky Valenti. And um, I should say this woman named Becky Valenti. I can't <laughs> believe I said girl. Come on. It's 2022, Josh. You can't Sorry. say girl anymore. Um, but she was fantastic. She's like you know an editor for um, big TV shows and, and other movies. Mm-hmm. And she just digested all of it. It was so hard. I mean, we sat there for months. Figuring it out, trying to, you know, what story are we going to tell? Does this fit? Does that, do we have cool footage? And we got lucky. We, I, the hardest part of that was sending it to Tom. So we speak with Tom in London. So we had to fly to London to interview and then fly back to the States, finish the editing. And then we finish everything finally and we show it to Tom and we're just waiting for like brutal notes. You always are. Yeah. He loved it. That Great. was it. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, I'm still shocked to this day. I, see, I would be afraid that he wouldn't want to talk to you because he's on to something else. Yeah. But on the, on the flip side, he's probably got back-end money on this movie. Sure. It's also, it's, a, it's an extension of his career now yep. to be this action guy. Yeah. You know, from um, when he was a, a, was he, do you think he was a Brat Packer? Would you call him that from Risky I Business? I think he, yeah, I, he never did the movies with the other ones. That right. was the thing. He kind of broke out very quickly and is like, no, I'm, he was smart. Yeah. Because they all faded. They were all in that big group, that St. Elmo's group. That's right. Kept working together, and it was two diminishing returns versus Tom always going alone each time. Yeah. Thought, other than the Outsiders, which was, you know, That's right. and I get maybe taps. He did taps with a few of them. But right, right. after that, he realized smartly that you have to be the one person everyone's looking at. Yeah. So, so he knows this is, this is the stage of my career I'm in now. This, this has got to be a hit. Yep. Also, if it's a hit... I don't know if he even cares about money anymore, but if he does, a lot more twenty and thirty million dollar paydays. Sure. If if this, therefore, I do need to talk, talk to Josh. Yep. <laughs> I'm telling you the other thing too about this interview. So we go, we fly to London. Me and and a guy named Andrew and a, and a guy named Bruce and a guy named Ben. We all fly there, the four of us. And we the day before we're we're supposed to interview Tom the next day. We get there and we cannot get our rentals of our equipment like settled. And the equipment house was closing at 6 o'clock. And there was a moment where I was like, we're not going to get our gear. We, we came all the way over here, and we have no gear. But they gave it to us. We went and picked it up. Then they, Tom's people told us he'll be there next tomorrow between 9 and 1 p.m. <laughs> so we go there. We set up at 7. We're all ready to go at 9. And we're thinking, what? Tom will show up at, like, what? 12.30, right? Yeah. Or 1.30 even. Tom shows up at 9.05. Look at him. First guy in there. Yes. And I had to sit there and interview him. And I, what, it, the thing is you psych yourself up for these things, you know, for, for anything that mm-hmm. is a high-pressure thing. But it came so abruptly. I had no time to do that. I had no cards. And I just, for 90 minutes, I sat there and talked to him off the cuff. It was, it was the weirdest experience of my life. It was really weird because I'd watched him as a kid, right? Right. Like Tom Cruise, that's the thing about movies that's so powerful is you – and it's weird, too. It's kind of dark and kind of strange. But the people that you see as children can never be people to you. Right. They're always going to be movie stars. So they're always going to be the character that they were in a film. And then all of a sudden to be dropped into a room 
with Tom and there's all these people staring at you and Tom was always perfectly courteous and professional to me, but you also never know, right? You don't want to be that guy who fucks up and gets yelled at. Um, but somehow it all worked out. Mm-hmm. I still can't believe that it worked out as well as it did all these years later. Dive bars in the Val. Yep. Fox Fire, it's called? The Fox Fire Lounge. Where's that? It's on Magnolia. It's it's in the movie Magnolia. It's the bar they go to in Magnolia. <laughs> it's on Magnolia and not Coldwater, but maybe the one next. Right, if you go down. Somewhere if, around there. Yeah, Magnolia and Coldwater. And then there's also the Chimney Sweep. Uh-huh. Uh, which is incredible over on uh, Woodman and more. More, what's that called? More Park? Okay. And then the barrel, which is just right over here on Van Nuys. I love dive bars. The best thing about dive bars, aside from the price, when they, I got my, when I came, I moved, you know, I was living on the west side. I moved here. Yeah. I got my first bar tab from a dive bar. And I was like, where, where's all the drinks? First of all, <laughs> and why are they so cheap? I had like six drinks and my bill was $30. I couldn't, it didn't compute in my head. What was your favorite dive bar on the west side? Well, in the West Side, I would mostly go to Sonny McLean's just because it was a, f- a friend owns the bar. Mm. Uh, it's not really a dive because the beers are like eleven dollars. Oh my god! But um, and the West Side doesn't really have dive bars in yeah. a sense. They just don't. Like on the, in in Las Feliz, I would always go to the Rustic. Yes, uh, love the Rustic. But um, but there weren't really on the. But here they're they're great. They're cheap, mm-hmm. and you can talk to people. That's that's about dive bars. You people go there to talk, right? And I think if you don't realize that, then you're missing out because. You know, if you're bored sitting at home, just go to a bar and talk to some people. It's great. At a dive dive bar, it isn't the LA scene. Yep. It's it's you're you're there because it's not the scene. You yep. know, you're not at catch. Mm-hmm. You're you're not at wherever. You're and you're right. The the prices are, are better. The yeah. drinks are usually a little. And I stiffer. think now more than ever too. I think that was the. I think we're getting we're going to start getting the tail of the whole COVID pandemic, the tail of shit. <laughs> Which is going to be, you know, kids have not socialized the way they probably should have. And right. People are not touching each other anymore. And that has real effects on you. And it people does. need to, I guess my message is go to a dive bar. You'll, you'll be better about yourself. That's you know, right. You'll That's feel better right. about yourself. Maybe we should open a, a slow dancing club. Remember those old, those, I think it was before my time, but you used to be able to go to bars and like taxi dancers. They would pay women to dance with, with lonely old men. There used to be one in downtown LA. Yeah. Not that long ago. Uh, let's talk about Licorice Pizza real quick because we're here, we're here in the Val. Yep. And you loved Licorice Pizza? I did. PTA loves to shoot in the Valley. Yes. And do you think it's lazy what he does? Maybe it's not because uh, There Will Be Blood wasn't just shot. Yeah, in the or Phantom Thread. There you go. Um, I'm glad he came back. In Licorice Pizza, one of my issues with it was she's 24, 25. Yep. He's a teenager. Yep. Why is she attracted to this guy? He's not like stunningly handsome. He's he's got a little pizzazz about him. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it's baloney or if he's just a trust fund kid with money or whatever. But but that that's the other thing that I love about native Californians, no disrespect. Yep. Is that character would have already seen it all by now. 
the, the fact that they run into Barbara Streisand's boyfriend, mm-hmm. who's also super huge, is kind of normal in, in Los Angeles life. You do run into the most famous people in the world, and, and after a while, it's no big deal. Yep. They're just as crazy as everybody else. And so why is, he, why is she attracted to him? I think it's because it's a hard critique to make because you're making a pretty value judgment critique of a, of a female actor, but she's a loser. That's what she really is, I think. She's, she's 27 or 24, whichever, you know, I think she says 27 in the movie one time and then corrects herself. But she's got a shitty job. As we learn, she's had other shitty jobs. She's kind of just bouncing through life. She doesn't have a boyfriend, mm-hmm. which is not to say you have to have a boyfriend, but she doesn't. She's lonely. So she's a lonely person who can't make a real living, who otherwise her family seems to be very stable. She probably feels like, you know, she probably has a pretty shitty outlook on her own life. And then all of a sudden what the kid is, I don't think it's even the money or even the charisma. I think it's the hope that when you are lonely and tired and sad about your own life, meeting people that are just full of hope is like an intoxicant. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is the relationship. Um, his optimistic spirit. Yeah. Just his sort of, it's, you know, it's when you're hiking with someone that you would have given up on the hike long before if they weren't with you. (laughs) And you know, he's like, let's go, let's keep going. And then you get to the top and you're like, fuck, I could do that every day. There, there are a couple of cringy elements of licorice pizza. Yep. There's the portrayal of Asians. Yep. I feel, I felt cringed about the portrayal of the, um, the gay politician in the closet and his boyfriend that wants it to be public mm-hmm. in the middle of an election. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also this age difference between the main characters. Yep. Shouldn't... Were you surprised that there wasn't backlash about this? Um, I think there was... I mean, there was in some circles. There was certainly backlash about the John Michael Higgins character and the Asian thing. Um I believe Paul when he says that he saw, he witnessed that as a kid, you know, with his um, mother-in-law, I think, or some, someone's that he'd seen. And I've look, I've seen it. <laughs> um, and then the age thing, I, I think it goes to this issue of presentism, which is when you tell a story, do you tell the story with the morals of our time or the morals of the time in which it took place? Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I was okay with it. The only part of the Asian thing that to me was uncomfortable was. Some people, I think Dave Chappelle said this years ago when he quit his show, he's like, some people are laughing way too loud at the wrong thing. <laughs> like, I don't think he was portraying that character in a positive light. I think it was embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no doubt that some people in the audience were laughing because they thought it was funny. Yeah. And that I think is, but that's also, I think, outside of Paul's control. I think he was just saying, this is the most honest version of this story that I know. Um, and also, Paul's just kind of like a fuck you guy sometimes, yeah. you know, when you watch his movies. It's true. He's like, I'm going to do this, and I don't care if you don't like it. And in, and in fact, I kind of don't want you to like it, because maybe what I'm doing is I'm just uppercutting when you're expecting an overhand. The, the one scene that I did love of, of Licorice Pizza was the grand opening of the waterbed store, Yeah, where he is not a good boyfriend to her. And she is very emotional about this and takes it in a, in a very real way. And if, if the roles were reversed, I think he would have been a better boyfriend at 20-whatever years old mm-hmm. and had appreciated the fact that you've got to take care of your girl, especially in a situation like this. Yeah. Which is why I liked that part. It seemed, it seemed real. At, at, the other one I liked was uh, the dad. Yeah. 
I mean, I've never been to any of these Jewish... Uh, That's her real dad, too. Yeah. I, yeah. I, whole family. I want a movie just about that. Yeah. What are you up to now? Right now, I am producing a movie, which I wrote, which is exciting. Um, it's called Roof. Mm-hmm. It's about... Two people, uh, one of whom will be Bella Heathcote, a wonderful actress, and one will be Asif Ali, a wonderful actor, about two office workers over a long July 4th weekend. They find themselves on the roof of their skyscraper for different reasons. There's a power outage. Everyone leaves the building. The door locks behind them. And now they're stuck up there for, it's one of those years where like, July 4th on a Tuesday. Yeah. So everyone's leaving early on Friday and taking Monday off. Genius. So they're stuck up there for five days with no water, no food, and she's pregnant. Oh. So we'll see. I mean, it's exciting to make something. It's small, obviously. And Don't it's tell a, people if yeah. they're up there for five days. That's a spoiler. I know. Well, they're going <laughs> to... Well, they'll figure it out pretty quickly. I mean, it's, it's a big part of the storyline. Um, Is it? Okay. Yeah. But... Um, I don't like to it's know fun. anything about movies when I go in. It's you know you say that and they and I always people always complain about trailers showing you too much oh, I, it, and survey no after survey shows people want to know it's weird you you're a producer in this movie that you wrote yeah there there is a lot of different definitions for producers mm-hmm. on both TV and movies and it seems like they're different yeah my belief is there's two different kinds of producers there's the guy that you call when you need a lot more money. Mm-hmm. And then there's the guy that you call when you need stuff. Yep. Is that the two different types of producers? I mean, there there are there are much worse versions of producers. <laughs> <laughs> there are there are producers who, you know, this tends to happen with talent, which is if you agree to make the movie, you become a producer. Um, it matters, and, and, and that gives you a cut of the movie. It depends on how everything is structured, but you know you certainly are more likely to participate in in the profit of the film if you're a producer of it. Okay. Um, and actors, many actors want to make their own movies, like they want to bet on themselves, and it's hard to do that if you haven't been a named producer in something, you know. Or I should say, the more you are a named producer, the more people take you seriously, because mm. uh, people don't always know what's real and what's fake. So. There are some producers that are just name-only producers. There are producers who worked on the first movie of what is now a 10-part you know, sequel thing, and they're still listed as producers even though they've long since moved on. Hmm. Um, but typically their contracts allow them to continue to participate and be named as a producer, and you get you know, your, what we call a line on the budget, a line item on the budget, you get paid. So, but, but Okay, so that guy, let's say it's, it's, it's episode nine. Yep. If there's a problem on the set, can I call that guy? No. <laughs> no. He's and just there to get his paycheck. The reality is the only one you're ever going to call on, you know, if you have a problem, is you're going to call the line producer. Okay. You know, he's the real day-to-day boss of the money. He's the one who is preparing or overseeing the preparation of all the paperwork that will eventually go out to key personnel explaining how much money we spent how much money we expected to spend? Are we over? Are we under? How does the schedule look in relation to the whole you know, budget? I don't remember seeing line producer in the credits in movies. You'll see it sometimes. Sometimes they'll go under. They'll be, they'll, they'll, the credit they'll often take is executive producer. That guy's the line producer. Well, the thing is you usually have multiple executive producers as right. well. It's a hornet's nest of indefinability. Okay. Because everyone wants, first of all, everyone wants the producer credit. 
That tends to be the real credit if you're a producer. Because... It's just sort of the way it's worked out over the years. That if someone is it's, an it's actual clout? producer, it's yeah, you actually did the work. Whether I produced you, Top Gun Five. Yeah, you hired the director, or you commissioned oh. the script to be written, or you found the original story. I see. Or you're the one who brought on the actors. Okay. Or, you know, you're the real sort of engine of the film. Uh, everyone wants that credit. Clearly, the people who are the and not everyone who's who gets that credit really deserves it. Mm-hmm. But the person who does really deserve it tries to keep it as exclusive as possible. Oh. So those are the real producers. But then you have the executive producers who, and that is where you start going. When you start talking about executive producers, associate producers, co-producers, and you ask me what they mean, I'll just ask you, what day is it? Right. Because it'll mean something different based on what production, what person, you never know. So you're the producer of this movie. Of this Of a roof. Yeah. Um, what's your budget? Right now, it's a, I can't say, I don't know if I can say the whole budget. It's around a million dollars. That seems reasonable. Yeah. yeah. How much was Tangerine's budget? It wasn't much. By the way, that movie should have won Best Picture. It was great, wasn't it? Sean and Baker. Sean Baker. Simon Rex was so good in that film. Simon Rex. Uh, how'd you like Red Rocket? Loved it. That's what I'm talking about. Red Rocket. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Tangerine. When I, <laughs> I, I, I took a leap of faith that we were both seeing the same reference there. I'm no, like, Red Rocket uh, was incredible. Like, what, what did he play in yeah. Tangerine? No, no okay. Tangerine. Well, let's just talk about... Let's talk about Red Rocket then. Yeah, Red Rocket is fucking great. Red Rocket came out last year. Yep. Um, it seemed like a very low-budget movie. Yeah. Another movie that was shot during COVID, which is why it probably got released this year, yep. last year. Um, Simon Rex, not a guy that I would book on any of my movies Yep. because I didn't think he was all that talented, blew me away. Yeah. So good, so likable. If he dies in this movie, I'm not going to give anything yeah. away. And he's a scumbag. I would be sad. He's a scumbag. Is, which but, is impossible to yeah. do. Yeah. But, but maybe that's why you hire him, because you know he's unlikable yeah. in real life. That's who you play this, have to play the scumbag. Sure. Not Elena Haim. <laughs> yeah. Haim. <laughs> Red totally Rocket was so good. It was so good. Great. Two million bucks, you think, for that movie? It depends on a lot of things. It depends on how many days they shot. It depends on where they shot it. Shot, it seemed like they shot in the Nowhereville of I, I Texas. Think they, I mean, the, the reality these days, if you're doing a... Our film is non-union because we can't afford union rates and union crews. Yeah. There's just no version of that. Like, Is that acceptable in Hollywood? It depends on how high your budget is. Mm. Some people... If, if you have a truly low budget... And, you know, look, I would love to hire, I would love to have a larger budget. I just don't have the money right now. Right. Um, when I worked at E, that was a non-union place for yeah, a lot of, lot of that kind of, reality TV, I think a lot of it's still non-union. Mm. Uh, I mean, they're still paid decently. They're just yeah. not being paid union rates. But, but they knew if, if I'm going to book a cameraman for a day at E rate, non-union rate, but they get a gig in Warner Brothers. Oh, they're gone. Yeah. 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 So it's the, 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 you know, the game. Yeah. Yeah, I think Red Rocket, I would guess three to six million. Okay. It depends on how many days. you Like, you have a daily run rate of what all your expenses are, all your crew expenses. Mm-hmm. It can go anywhere from, I don't know, like, I think 250 on the high side to 75 on the low side, 50 on the low side. 250 grand a day. To, that's to hire everyone, to have all the gear. It's a round number that you just, you know, you yeah. have a real number, but just as, you know, all, for reference None of those sake. sets looked expensive. No, I think they were all locations that were decorated. Maybe the maybe the mall was an abandoned mall. Let's guess. Probably, yeah. Or, or guess, a six a.m. situation. Oh, that's a good way to get yeah. around it. Or a night situation, yeah. 
And most malls are kind of abandoned these days. I know, it's sad. Except for the ones here for some The outdoor years. malls are still big. Yeah, L.A. malls are doing fine. Yeah. How, how bizarre is that? I know. We don't need malls in L.A. Well, we're getting away from the sun. Oh, yeah, that's true. You know? <laughs> uh, I bet Florida malls do okay still because it's just so miserable in Florida when it's not that's the winter true time. That's true, too. Yeah. So, so let's, let's pretend they found an abandoned mall. They didn't even really use much of the mall. Just nope. the, the, the water portion. Yep. Um, okay. So, so maybe a hundred grand a day. Pro- probably for something like that, maybe probably a little less. Like I don't know the number, but I bet it's like. And, and none of those actors are high-paid actors. No, you're probably paying them like scale. Is my guess. Hmm. Um, and they're happy to work with Sean Baker. Yeah, he's an auteur. He's a great filmmaker. I mean, all three of his movies have resonated increasingly resonated with the public. So. And um, and is is it a twenty four that that put out all three of those? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what the deal is. I don't. Think A24 funds them? Maybe they do fund. I don't know if they fund them or if they acquire them. So there's sort of two models. One is like Coda actually wasn't financed by Apple. It was separately financed and then Apple bought it. So they acquired it versus produced it, you know, from scratch. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the case was with Red Rocket. Why would Apple do that? Well, Coda won the grand jury prize at Sundance. So after it has already been... Premiered at Sundance. Everyone loved it. Bidding war. Apple clearly needed something. Until this year, Apple was considered sort of the also-ran of the streamers. That's right. right. Even their big shows, Morning Show, ton which, of money. Which had to cost a fortune. Fortune. Never Jennifer really. Jennifer Aniston. Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell. That, that's a lot of money. They're all making, they had to be making over half a million dollars an episode. They and then they had uh, Jason Momona, Momona. Yeah, C, yeah. Which had to cost a fortune. Yeah, big visual effects. Flop. Yep. Did they have any hits? Ted Lasso. Oh, Ted Lasso. That was it. They're cheap, probably the cheapest show they had. Because they're shooting it in England where you're going to get a massive tax rebate. Oh, they, um, they, England does that for you? Yeah, that's why so many Hollywood productions are in England now. Like mm. Netflix is just shooting at Shepperton all the time. So Apple bought Coda yep. because they wanted people to subscribe to Apple+. Plus. I think. Well, I think they look at Apple Plus as a loss leader, as my guess, because there's really no way to... I don't know how you actualize, like, you know... I mean, in accounting, you can do whatever you want. It's the loss leader because once I'm on Apple Plus, maybe I'll buy uh, the, 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 a movie on there. Well, the promotion I had for the longest time is if you buy, you know, like I'm still on my free Apple Plus because I bought a laptop. Yeah. And I think that's part of it is like you buy an Apple product. Hey, look, you're going to get this $4.99 service for free. Right. Um, and most people don't cancel these things. They nope. just let them, they let it ride until they have a financial situation. So you get them in and you just, you know, you've created a constantly recurring stream of income and there's our, we already know this. There's a fucking cult when it comes to Apple products. There is. And they're just trying to do the same thing with their TV where you're like, you, everyone has Apple plus. Well, I'll tell you my, my Apple plus died or, uh, you know, expired. Yep. Cause I have a old computer now which is a year and a half two years old Mm -hmm. and but then they got me on the family plan because i love apple music and i want my mom to be able to have apple music through her whatever and so that's 14 bucks and so they're like well if you have the family plan you get apple plus free yeah free it's five bucks bundled yeah (laughs) but it's easier yeah and i do want to watch these movies when they come out and it was great to watch Coda at home. Mm-hmm. I don't think I needed to watch that in the movie theater. I still think movies are, I still think it's a qualitatively different experience. Oh, for sure. You know, and it's weird that the industry, I told someone recently, we have invented the greatest way in the world to watch movies, right? We invented it 
whatever, 70 years ago. And we've chosen to abandon it. It, it would be like as if the, movie, the music industry one day said, you know what, we're not going to do these concerts live anymore. When can we expect to go to the movie theaters and see Roof? Well, I hope we're going to see Roof in a movie theater, first of all. <laughs> I have a fear that, that if I... If well, we you, are... just, you just laid out how you do it. You go to Sundance, you win. Yep. Apple pays you... How much did Apple pay? Do you know? $25 million. That much? $25 million, yeah. It's worth $25 bucks for them to put it on Apple+. Plus. Well, that's been the weird thing about streaming, because they have no income stream, but they pay more. Because they have... Because these are tech companies. When you look at, if you actually look at like the valuations of entertainment companies versus tech companies, you know, Apple's almost at $3 trillion now. Right. Well, because I'm paying a thousand bucks just for a phone. Yeah. I'm never paying, I've, I don't think I've ever paid Paramount a thousand dollars. Ever. Exactly. I've and never will. Movies. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. Going forward, I'll never, Paramount will never get a grand out of me. Yeah. Apple gets it out of me every four years. I know. And you think about, you know, Legacy movie studios used to put out like, let's say they put out 20 movies a year, which they don't anymore. They don't put out nearly that many. Right. But if they were putting out 20 movies a year at um, $100 million a pop, which is probably a high estimate, that's only $2 billion. Mm-hmm. Netflix, Apple, Peacock, they're all spending in the tens of billions of dollars on content every year. So it's not even close anymore. So does that, does that inspire uh, a filmmaker like you that they're – there's a need for content, so I will give them the content? Well, partly because, well, here's the thing is, I feel like we're going to reach saturation at some point, if we haven't already. Yeah. Like, look at Netflix's stock over the last three months. Mm-hmm. They missed on subscribers for the first time, last time they reported, and there is this sense that a lot of these companies are losing money. They're making tremendous bets on, there's no way that these account balances line up. Mm-hmm. They're spending $11 billion on TV shows and movies. It's not being reflected you know, in the a new amount of business they're taking in. So at some point, you figure there's going to be consolidation. There's going to be less of what we're seeing now. Um, but, but, okay, let's pretend I'm Netflix's new boss. What a great job. I can yep. ride my bike to work. I would bet on you way more than even Judd Apatow's movie in the castle. Yep. Because... Your movie's only going to cost me 10 million bucks to buy. Probably a lot less than that. Yep. His is going to cost me a fortune. And I don't even think they're really hyping that movie very much. Yeah. Yours, I have now more money to hype and get people to watch. I hope it becomes like a Queen's Gambit or a Squid, mm-hmm. squid Game. Isn't that a better bet to bet on something that's got lower overhead? I think the reality with them, with, with companies that make those kind of bets, is if you buy 100 independent films, right? maybe one hits, right? Okay. Versus Judd Apatow, you know, and, and it's weird because they're not talking about dollars like at a box office anymore. There's, it's hard to measure yeah. what success really is. But, you know, there's people are going to watch the Judd Apatow film, no matter what. I did. Yeah, they're going to watch it. And they may not like it, but they'll watch it or they'll watch a part of it. I watched it all the way through. Yeah, and that's how, that's how they actually measure engagement is how much of a movie you watch. So... This has always been the issue, I think, for lower-budgeted films. Is there, I, I think they're in, instinctively or intrinsically more compelling than larger-budget films. Yes. Only because you're allowed to tell different stories. Right. Whereas large-budget films have a responsibility to the shareholders to, like, this can't be a weird story. 
Like it can't be. It, we can't tell a cool story for the first forty-five minutes and then do something really fucked up and weird that turns off the audience, and then we they just we lose them, and then it. But on an independent in, film, absolutely you can do that. In fact, they usually do. They so, take these weird narrative turns and twists all the time. So is is Licorice Pizza an indie movie then? Oh no way, not even close. But because he's PTA, yeah, he's allowed freedom. He's yeah, he's in a he and Tarantino, and I'm trying to think who else. There's a couple guys. There's not many women that are in that space yet, and mm-hmm. hopefully there will be because it's it's like it's still way out of balance. It's not even close. Is is A24 an independent? Yeah, they're an independent studio. Yeah. So, did you see X? Not yet. I want to see it. I heard it was really good. I don't, I don't usually go see horror movies the first weekend, um, just because they scare me. <laughs> first, I, I want to see them after. I just want to make sure there's nothing in there that's too that's going to freak me out too much. I enjoyed it. Yeah. And, and I'm not a horror guy. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Is it more of a a, a, a thriller horror or like satanic horror? It's. I think it's 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 almost a parody of seventy. Thriller slasher. Is it gory? Mm, a little bit. Okay. No, nothing like Titan. Oh yeah, yeah. Did you see was, that one? Yeah, I did. Yeah, that was weird. I had to watch through my my hands. Yeah. Which I keep telling myself, it's a set. That's ketchup. That that's a guy walking on rocks. That's mm-hmm. not bones crushing. Yep. I think that's what makes great movies. Yeah. You know it's fake, yet it feels so real. Yeah. Did you enjoy that movie? I did. I thought it was a little. Those, those aren't my kind of movies necessarily because they're so it's it's abstract in a way that you can't maybe it's different for horror movies but it's abstract to the point where I don't really get invested yeah like if that you know if, if that movie had started the way Coda did and then halfway through it turned into a horror movie it would really fuck me up because I'd be like wait no not to them no they're good people don't right. do this but when it's this you know abstract horror idea that's very you know, you know very tony and very sort of I don't know what the word is for it, um, but that was, that I, don't, was I don't get connected to it too much. Yeah. It, French movies have gotten that way on the horror side for a good decade now. They have a whole like thing going on over there with... But, but that movie in Nightmare Alley, mm-hmm. which I also saw... I, I saw Nightmare Alley in the theater. I saw Titian at, at home. Mm-hmm. I think sells the idea you've got to watch movies at the movie theater. Yeah. Because... Are you really going to walk out if it's too gruesome? Yeah. You might, but you might actually even hang in there a little longer. Mm-hmm. So Nightmare Alley sucked me in immediately. And all these negative reviews that I, I heard from people, I assume they did not see it in a theater. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the production design, the music, all the things that um, uh, Guillermo del Toro uses in all of his movies. Yeah really shined brightly in a movie theater and you just I've got a kick-ass TV mm-hmm. but I also got cats running around I got yeah. phones ringing there's something to be said of you can't it. I don't think you can be you can't experience a movie at even close to what it's capable of being experienced at at home nope. I don't care how big your theater is right it's not it's not the size it's not how loud and how big your screen is it is about your focus yep this is why I don't even like stadium seating you know, mm. I don't like, I think it's actually important that you look up like there. And this is like built into us as humans. Interesting. That, you know, when people say that a movie theater, Jeff Wells is this writer, uh, a Serbic old, mean old man writer uh, who writes a website called Hollywood Elsewhere. But he's like, movies are church. Yes. And church would be different if you weren't looking up. If you were looking down <laughs> at church, I think it loses a lot of its power and value. Interesting. Um, so I do think that going to a movie is like, and this is the thing I've hated most about the pandemic is, you know, 
movies, I see the writing on the wall. I don't think they're going to be gone, but they're going to be different. They're going to be less of them. They're not going to have matinee. Like I used to love waking up on a Saturday morning, going to a matinee. I did that all my whole life. And then the pandemic, it's just over. They don't have them anymore. Movies start at like four in the afternoon. Yeah. And they're going to go further. There's going to be fewer theaters with bigger movies in them. And I feel like we've just given up the ghost on that. Like, you know. So Tom Cruise was right. Shoot from low. Shoot from low. And also you're saying view from low. View from low. Look up. There's something about looking up. There is. I think there is. And I did see. uh, Same with like going to a rock concert. Do you want to be on the on the floor or do you want to be in the rafters? Like, it, it is a totally different experience, isn't yeah. it? Well, Mr. Josh Tate, God bless you. Thank you for having us today. Thank you for chatting. I enjoyed it. And thanks for this insightful discussion. Of course, anytime. All right. Take care, man. How great was Josh? You know who we would write movie reviews for for nothing? Our Patreons. When you stoke us, you're saying, Tony, Jordan, here's a beer at a dive bar. Here's two Long Island iced teas at Islands. Here's a kiss on the cheek and a new transmission for the Benz. Every donation you hand over helps us keep this insane project a-rolling. So shout out to our Patreons, Nancy Rommelman, Sean Atlow, Matt Mills, Sean Wallace, Greg and Molly, Jamie Taylor, Mark Johnson, Kira Ann, Barney Grinke, Ben Welsh, Henry Furman, Jen Adams, The Lonely Chair, Trevor Wilson, Bree Wild, Dougie Gyro, and Christina. Want to hear your name at the end of next week's show? Go to patreon.com slash here in LA and uh, give whatever you got. Also, shout out to our Angelinos. To be an Angelino, all you have to do is PayPal us 25 bucks or more, and we will list you on the Here in LA website that will be done at some point. Relax. Forever. You'll also be given a number to denote how early you got in. For example, Angelino number one is Allie Miller. Number two is George Wright. Number two plus is also George Wright. Thanks for the burritos. And number three is uh, Rita Joanne. Number four is Jason Sutter. Five, Grant Houghton. Six, Rob Baker. Seven is Kev Chang. Eight is Brenda Garcia. And nine is John Griffiths. Thank you all so much for contributing. If you want to contribute too, just PayPal your hard-earned cash to busblog at gmail.com. Want to support us, but you're dumping all your Bitcoin into a new movie you're producing? Totally understood. But you can still help. Post your favorite episode on Facebook. If you see a tweet about here in LA, retweet it. If you see a, a Facebook post, like it as soon as you can. Uh, just liking it early helps the algorithm get more people to discover these podcasts and uh, make things a little easier for us. Because trust me, we need it to be a little bit easier. Uh, tell your friends about it. That never hurts. Tell them how Here in L.A. is spelled, and then it's on Apple Podcasts and Google and Spotify. Here in L.A. is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and a man who knows what the F stands for, and Paul F. Tompkins. Jordan Katz. Editing, mixing, and music supervision by... Jordan Katz. Songs by Oregon and Jordan Katz. Special thanks to Cindy for creating the logo, Jen for inspiring this, and everyone out there working their way up the ladder of success. Say hi to Emma Stone for us. For us. For us. For us.